You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Podcast Detroit. This is Liz Reed, your resident guru here, uh, having a good time today. We're going to be talking a little bit about heroin and addiction. I'd like to thank Rocky Wallace uh, for that great song, Head Rush. She'll be appearing at the Hitching Post today in Lapeer. Isn't that wild, Julie? She will be there. I'm, I'm excited. Well, I believe we're going to be there as we're well. We're going to be there as well. We're not too exhausted. Exactly. <laughs> appearing live. Um, so we're real excited about this. This is, of course, my co-host, Julie. Hey there. We have a special guest today. Um, one of my past clients, her name is Shannon. So hi, Shannon. Hello. So glad you're here. Thank Thank you for Thank coming, you. babe. And she's going to have a lot of useful information for us today. Um, before we get started, you know how I'd like to read my little disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not meant to replace treatment or diagnosis by a qualified mental health professional, which is me, but we're going <laughs> to ignore that for today, right? <laughs> how is everybody doing? Well, good now that we're uh, not in the car anymore. No. <laughs> Every time Julie and I drive here, there's some horrid accident. It was oh. not good for our mental health. No, Let me just point that not. out. And, and, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, like, they've been, they, like, wickedly bad. Like, that one on 75 going south two weeks ago was horrendous. Sad. And then the one we just ran into on 53 coming up here was horrendous. That car was burnt to the ground. <sighs> that was really anyway unnerving. <laughs> I know. Let's regroup here. And we are. <laughs> Ooh, Ooh. You know, we're going to regroup totally. Yes. Um, I made my reservations today to go to Boston, so I'm stoked about oh. that. I'll be in Portland, Maine for like oh, four days, nice. and then I'll be down oh, in nice. Boston for a okay. week. So Boston. I'm excited to do that. I love, there's New England's like Michigan on steroids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It rocks. It's beautiful. Have you yeah. ever been there, no, Shannon? I haven't. Oh my God, it's so gorgeous. I used to live in Boston. I, yes. I just absolutely love it there. And um, so I'm going to go hang out with my sister. Also, I'm I, in full disclosure, what? August 14th. A day after my sobriety date of 17 years, I'm having a facelift. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah. I can't wait. There's going to be wow. no living with me. If you think it's bad now, it's going to be terrible then. Oh, goodness. <laughs> I'm going to be so hot, you won't know what to do with me. Anyways, just pointing that out, I thought I'd, you know, in full disclosure, let everybody know. So anyways, I'm good. You guys are good. Mm-hmm. Everything seems to be going okay. Yeah. Right no, on. No complaints. Okay. So we have a big problem in the United States of America and across this world, and it's heroin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, all addictions are bad, precisely. Many addictions are bad. What were we reading in the card about alcohol, though? That's still the number one, isn't it? Well, I was shocked. Yeah. It's the number one leading cause of death for diseases. So, Yeah, because it's classified as a disease now. Over cancer? Yeah. I I, Honestly, I had no idea. That's amazing. That shocked me. You know, Shannon, I wanted Mm -hmm. to ask you that before we even get started. How do you feel about um, heroin, or uh, excuse me, about um, alcohol or any type of addiction being classified as a disease? Mm. That's a hard question to answer because I have mixed feelings about it. Um, I definitely think it's... I don't know. It's somewhat more of even like a personality mm-hmm. disorder, it seems like, or, yeah. you know, condition way of, it's more of a thinking disorder hmm. uh-huh. to classify. I I mean, it qualifies to meet the qualifications of a disease, yep, so it I does. think it deserves the respect of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But definitely, you're right. You yeah. Know, it does. It It is a mind fuck is what it is. <laughs> right. It just takes over your brain, right? Right. You would agree with that. Now, does it get more funding because it's considered a disease, like the treatment and, oh, I don't and all think that. So. No, I think it <laughs> no? just was. Oh, yeah. I thought um, that was part of the reason, like just for to be the ability to even be acknowledged as something yeah. more than just a choice. Really, right. yep, absolutely. Because yeah. a lot of people think of it just as a choice, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. Um, so, well, quickly, let me just give a little quick rundown for our audience who doesn't know a whole lot about opiates, heroin, or addiction, or kind of what a little history on heroin and the opium epidemic. This dates back to uh, the Mesopotamians. I mean, 
They were wow. using the poppy milk uh, for pain relief and recreational use in 3400 B.C., now, that's a long time ago, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they called it the joy plant, and they used to use it to calm their children. <laughs> wow. Holy shitballs, I think the kids were probably knocked out. <laughs> I don't oh, think it would wow. be that calming, you know what I'm saying? Um, and then about in the 6th century, it came uh, to China through the trade routes, which was called the Silk Road through the Mediterranean from Central Asia, India, and in, into China. Um, and that's when things really started to get kind of out of control. Um, and a little over the top. And in the 1700s and 1860s, the British and the French had two separate um, wars that went on, opiate wars, in order to keep opiate, their trades uh, alive and keep opiates coming and going because they made so much profit off of hmm. it, right? Which uh, that's where everything stems from, money. Would you, yes. Would right. you not agree with that? Right. Yeah. We've Which talked is, about that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it came originally over to the United States somewhere around 1849. Opium did when the Chinese came to make the, the Chinese to make the railroads during the gold rush. Um, and, uh, this has created opium dens, which, you know, mm-hmm. Wild Bill Hickok and the whole crew mm-hmm. were involved in and stuff like that. And then, then it, they saw it as a Chinese thing that they were bringing dope and prostitution and crime to the United States. And that's when they opened the Chinese Exclusion Act. I bet you remember that mm-hmm. from your social work days, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, for 10 years, um, uh, Oriental people or Oriental people, Asians were not allowed into the United States because of this. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Was I supposed to know that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was pretty what? crazy. That's- yeah. Pretty extreme. Yeah. So mm. then anyways, so around 1803, they derived from uh, heroin morphine because there was such an epidemic. They thought, we'll use, we'll get into morphine now, which is less addictive. Well, no, because it wasn't as strong. Well, that didn't exactly work. That was developed by some German chemist. Um, it was a painkiller during the Civil War. Um, they refined it to be less addictive. By the 1890s, Bayer... Um, had also put it in cough syrups in the oh. 1900s. Uh, by the 1900s, it was out of control. But additionally, at this time, there was cocaine as well. Mm-hmm. They were putting in his cough syrups, uh, mood lighteners, <laughs> things like that to make you feel a little less than depressed, so yeah. on and so forth. Um, Brown, 1914, Theodore Roosevelt restricted the heroin and cocaine, cocaine distribution. And so that kind of started this progression of we got to do something about it because too many people are getting sick and dying from it. Around 1924, the Anti-Heroin Act was finally, um, put into effect, um, around World War II, though. An interesting thing was, is Hitler was using a lot of it with his German soldiers. Mm. Did you ever hear about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was crazy, right? He was addicted. They said that his doctor would wake up in the morning and shoot him up Mm -hmm. before he ever even got out of bed. Yeah, with a mixture of uh, methamphetamines and morphine, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, He also took animal hormones and a few other things. And uh, this was to give him a strong, virile man and so forth. But in reality, it's a speedball. Right. <laughs> what we call a speedball now, which is cocaine and heroin mixed together, together and shot up. Um, then he started a pill that was derived, uh, called pyrvitin. And, um, he gave that to the soldiers to keep them out in the battlefield under extremely horrible conditions and hmm. they would stay out there forever. Um, so we've had a couple of influxes and some really, um, uh, pushes where heroin became pretty prevalent, right? So in the 20s and 30s, um, it was more of a jazz band thing. You know, you'd see a jazz band, Billie Holiday, those kind mm-hmm. of people were doing a little bit of heroin here and there, you know. Um, um, Ray, oh my gosh, what am I saying? Ray, you know, the famous oh, black artist. Ray Charles. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I forgot his last name. He was addicted to heroin. A lot oh, of people were oh back gosh. then. Yeah, wow. absolutely. And then in the 1960s, we saw another re- a huge resurgence of it um, after the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. While over in Vietnam, they had uh, direct a- access to it, but um, alcohol was not allowed on the base. So, but illegal drugs were. <laughs> but, wow. <laughs> I know. That's crazy, yeah. right? And so a lot of those guys came over addicted to it. Um, that was around the time my brother Danny uh, was uh, uh, addicted to heroin at one point in his life. And that was around that time at the end of the Vietnam War. And so... Um, it was interesting how, um, you know, it affected him and how it came over and got into the suburbs. Because we grew up, 
grew up in Gross Point. I mean, it's a suburban drug. Are you kidding me? Yeah. That shit's going on around there. No one would have believed it, right? And then we had another resurgence in 1991 when um, people were prescribed outrageous amount of opiates. And it was originally for just cancer, but 86% of it were that the people that were taking it didn't have cancer. Right. So everybody was getting it, right? Big big money maker. It big money yep. maker. Two thousand ten, a crackdown on pills. Uh, uh, the, on the pills, they wouldn't. You couldn't get as many pills as you wanted to. So that's when heroin reemerged mm-hmm. one more time. Right. Right. Less expensive and easier to attain. Yeah. Absolutely. Around mm-hmm. two thousand thirteen, um, they started making synthetic uh, fentanyl. fentanyl. <laughs> yeah, to help had cut. That. Yeah. <laughs> well, if I had that. <laughs> Through yeah. the hospital. Yeah. 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 It and, works. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> yeah. And also kill you. Yes. Right. So I was given what we were talking about, like micrograms or something. Yes. Some tiny, tiny amount. Yes. But boy, that just that amount. The interesting thing about, about all this, though, is when I was reading the um, all the information on it, is that it all seems to go back to pharma. They, you know, like mm-hmm. you and I were talking oh. about this in the car. Yeah. It, uh, they Even though they do have lawsuits, they do get in trouble and things don't go well, they still are able to get away with it and come out on top somehow. Right. Well, they marketed Oxycontin as being non-addictive and a better alternative for pain because it didn't have the Tylenol in it. Like the, like did they it really? Did, and that's how it became... A huge epidemic because mm. they that stated, is like, yeah, if you look back, they state that it was not habit forming and not addictive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like they found out it was. Right. In the, in the New England Journal of Medicine, they stated at one point that only 1% of patients treated with narcotics can become addicted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's because Big Pharma um, funds these medical journals. Yeah. So this mm-hmm. was yep. like in the 1990s where. There were all these conferences, you know, convincing people that, oh, it's really not as addictive as you think. Mm-hmm, and yeah, mm-hmm. there's a big push. And then, of course, that's when everything just blew up, you know. Yep. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. And then you look into um, the background of it, of how um, they're able to get away with this. And it seems Sick. amazing, doesn't it? Well, you know, pharmaceutical companies put presidents in office. Sure. They have billions mm-hmm. and billions of dollars. Yeah. When I worked for uh, my psychiatrist in Southfield... They came and served us lunch every single week and whatever they were pushing, you know, she was taking testers for and putting different patients on. Well, Mm -hmm. after they did all this right now, all of the government funding is being funneled into medicated assisted treatment. There's Mm -hmm. suboxone or methadone because the pharmaceuticals companies have their hand in it. And now they're going to not only get you addicted, but put you on a medication for the rest of your life. To, Ab- oh, yep. my goodness. Absolutely. And that's something I want to talk about later is uh, the treatments. It's a dead end to nowhere. I was mm-hmm. reading this one. Um, I was. I just pulled something up online, and it said 88% um, are able to get off of uh, heroin, blah, 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 in a certain amount of time. I said, what? Wait a minute. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, you always have to check your sources. I'm like, what is this that I'm looking at? Of course, it was a rehab center. No. You could make that gross exaggeration. That's just a right. lie. Right. Yeah. That is just a lie. I think in uh, the movie Beautiful Boy, he went to a rehab place. And, and yeah, the, the, they told the father like some crazy statistic yeah. about their mm-hmm. success rates. Success rates. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it was just wrong. <laughs> and in reality, it is yeah. wrong. And it's and it depends on the person. But when you have a drug mm-hmm. that gets a hold of your brain like this, like we were talking about, mm-hmm. Shannon, I mean, that's the difficulty is is trying to detach yourself from the way you're thinking and feeling right right absolutely so okay so starting kind of like i know your background to mm-hmm. a certain degree you came from a very nice family i mm-hmm. like your whole family they're nice people you guys go to baseball games and hang out on the boat you have a son mm-hmm. you have a nice life you grew up in a good home how did your whole situation get started um i guess from as far back as I can remember, even starting in middle school, just wanting, once I found out about alcohol, taking it, uh, yeah. you know, to the extreme and then starting to smoke weed and just always kind of wanting to alter how I felt. And then uh-huh. I had some situations that occurred and um, I guess I behaviorally act out. So my parents took me to a psychologist and mm-hmm. that was going to be the answer. And so he, medicated me and I quickly found out okay well now I can self-medicate myself with these pills and started taking mm-hmm. Adderall and Xanax okay um and I'm sh- like some other antidepressants but quickly found which ones I liked and continued with that and mm-hmm. I think it just I lived in that world of like having to take something 
to get through the day to alter how I felt depending on what I had to do or what I was, you know, trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Um, Uh, Let me ask you this. I I remember I had a patient one time um, because I know you from Sacred Heart mm -hmm. where I was um, a therapist at Sacred Heart and I did the family therapy there as well as worked with patients and taught classes and that's how we know each other. But I remember a patient saying to me one day, I would judge how I was going to feel for the day by the pills I had in my hand. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. And so interesting, you know, I have too much of this or less than that. And so that would determine how she was going to feel for the day, right? Uh, One thing I wanted to ask though is does addiction run in your family at all um my dad's an alcoholic okay okay so you know what are the statistics on that well i always say it's 50 50 50 50 situational and 50 percent genetics yeah it's hard to say because i had an older and younger sister so we were all raised the same and they don't have an issue my younger sister actually is um has scoliosis so she has rods up and down her entire back and has been on prescription medications um got sense like high school yeah and has never abused them and never had an issue with it Hmm. that's amazing so yeah mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. yeah genetics is like you said well it's 40 to 60 so i mean basically Mm -hmm. like you said yeah 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 it's amazing because you would it it does play a part you have a predisposition to using Mm -hmm. if you have that history in your family yeah. And does he have a history with his par- any of his family be- behind him? You know, like his mom or dad or brothers or sisters? Um, his brothers are both alcoholics, too. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Um, That's usually the way it goes. So I have a question. Mm-hmm. So you were basically abusing these prescriptions, did, mm-hmm. like the Xanax. And you meant, what else did you mention? Adderall. Adderall. Yeah. So Adderall. You, if you were using them more than they were prescribed... Um, then how did you get additional refills? How did, see, I'm always, this is what always confuses well, me about prescription yeah. drugs. Um, what a thing called maps, which will track all of yes. your medications regardless oh, okay. of who prescribes them. But at that time I had two different, it. my family doctor oh. was prescribing them. Once I got the psychologist to prescribe them, then the family doctor continued. Oh, my and then goodness. I sought out a separate doctor. Yep. Um, or oh, a psychiatrist okay. and had him prescribe them as well. And then you just go to different pharmacies. I had to self-pay for one, half of the prescriptions mm-hmm. and then uh-huh. went through insurance for the other. Yep. They call that doctor shopping. Wow. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. That and takes so a lot of planning. Like, you, oh, like you said, planning out your day. By, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Being an addict is very creative, right, Shannon? That okay. <laughs> yeah. I, for the faint of heart. Yes. Okay. It isn't. It is not. It is. Uh, it takes a lot of time. I used to say that to patients all the time too. You know what? With all the ability and intelligence mm-hmm. you use into creating your addiction or staying in your addiction, you could own uh, your own business <laughs> and be extremely right. successful. These people think that for the most part, you know, like an addict might be some, you know, down and out, lazy, not, mm-hmm. lazy, good for nothing, but they're very creative, intelligent right. people that yeah. master this. I know I said that even if there was ever an apocalypse, I'd want to be in a rehab with all, cause they're the most creative, sure. um, <laughs> just beautifully artistic and yeah. Smart, Absolute. just brilliant, brilliant people. Like we yep. would be able to literally probably build a you know spaceship and take it to the moon with everybody's <laughs> brains if it was channeled towards a- positive energy. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. instead of negative, mm-hmm. for sure. So when did things start escalating into um, the arena of possibly using heroin? Um, so that was, so I was taking Xanax and Adderall. Um, I think I was, at some point was trading and getting Vicodins and stuff. Um, I went through a case. I did coke for a long time and then just kind of decided to stop doing that. I was sick of it and just would cycle back and forth between um, whatever different kind of pills. And then at the point um, I met my ex, he was on heroin Uh and I didn't know. And at that point I was taking large amounts of Vicodin along with the other um, medications. And at one point I couldn't get any. And then he was like, here, take this. And it was, you know, like a golden nugget because now I didn't have to take 20 pills. I could take... $20 $20 worth for an entire day versus, mm-hmm. you know, 150 Yep. Yep. And that works. I've um, had patients that were taking, yeah, they take 10 at a time every couple of hours or 15 to 20 pills at a time. And this is a way cheaper way to go. Wow. Mm-hmm. Until it's not. Yeah. Until it's that, not. Yeah. So that, I've, oh, sorry. Go wow. I'm just saying that has to produce a lot of anxiety just to think like, oh my gosh, you know, an X amount of time I have to have these pills again. Oh, I can't even imagine that. It's 24 seven, right? Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. That's yeah, thinking like I would be planning three, four days ahead of how I was going to make sure I maintain everything that I needed because you oh. had to think that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you're, then you're just panic stricken of 
the dreaded dope sick. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is just, we talked about this, the chemical component in the neurotransmitters within the brain. The more heroin we use, the more opiates you use. That's why it's a dead end abyss. You produce more neurotransmitters and mm-hmm. opiate receptors within the brain, which crave more. So crave more, crave more, crave more. So it's an abyss. It's mm-hmm. like a hole that can never be filled. Mm-hmm. So you just need more and you need more and you need more. And then you have this physical need that you have to have it. Otherwise, you detox and you feel terrible, mm-hmm. right? Is it like the worst flu in the world? I think it's described like that or something worse. Yeah, it's just that. I mean, the first time, like, so I eventually started doing heroin. And so this was, I was 29. So I had gone from high school, like, you know, 17, 20 years or whatever, doing all that other stuff and maintaining yeah. my life. And no one really knew, you know, mm-hmm. that, anything was going on but within two months of doing the heroin is when i went to rehab for the first time yeah so i and it took me 14 days to get into sacred heart at that point i thought i was gonna die i had goosebumps on my legs for over three days straight i was certain i was gonna stay like that the rest of my life really it was horrible it's beyond a flu i just because of the mental component of it where you and then you know like in a split second if i just had that i'd be a hundred percent better and that's the mind fuck of like you just yeah the thought of keep going or just instantly be better. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I would go in these rooms, you know, to drag people out of bed <laughs> in detox so that I could get them ready and going and get them in, you know, uh, checked in and, t- you know, um, take do a background and a biology on what's going on in their lives and, you know, and all their assessment and their information. And you have to go in these rooms and they're vomiting and, and they have diarrhea. And it's like, come on, man, oh. we got to go sit and talk. And they're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> and some people are like, I'll, you know, freaking claw your eyes out. I mean, they're aggressive and angry. And it's a horrible, horrible mm-hmm. thing yes. to be, you know, place to be. I've actually witnessed that. Have you? So, yeah, I'm going to be really transparent for the first time. Yes, when I was in the psychiatric ward yeah. for depression and mm-hmm. n- not wanting to be in this planet, on this planet anymore. Yeah, yeah uh, my roommate, um, I don't know exactly what she had been taking, but she was going through withdrawal and she was just miserable. Really? And they would, I believe she didn't receive any medication to help her with that now i might be wrong that's you know, just cruel. I, I don't know if that's you know if that's true or not I, uh-huh um but that was really hard to watch yeah well you know that's when methadone came in too they thought this was going to be the big helping drug well oh, she did mention that she had been going to a methadone oh, clinic she's probably coming off of methadone. yeah that which is so, worse Right. So I was confused kind of by the whole thing because she was talking about methadone. I thought, well, wait a minute. Well, that's the government again. You're addicted to Making some money off of something that is keeping you addicted. So methadone is like the worst thing in the world. Is it? The worst thing in the world. By far. far. The uh, coming off of methadone. Did you ever take methadone? No, thank God. I mean, I took it on the streets pill-wise, but then... Weaned myself off of it with heroin. Oh my, my, yeah, my, my good friend of, um, she was forty years old when she died of a methadone overdose. The pills, she oh. was addicted mm. to the pills. Yeah, for quote unquote air quotes here, back pain. You know, mm. housewife. You know, normal everyday lady. Mm-hmm. But methadone's a dead end to know. Okay. I don't know anyone yeah. that successfully no. gotten off of methadone. Right. There were some people coming in uh, that I'd say, "Okay, so I'm on methadone, man. Don't hassle me, okay? I'm like, I'm doing okay. I'm like, how many milligrams are you on a day? Two hundred and twenty. Two hundred and twenty milligrams of right. methadone a day. When they start you at like 10, yeah, oh, yeah, ten Lord. to twenty, and it's like, oh dear God, man, this is just legal heroin. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. but it gets in. I, they claim it's like in your bones. It's into your bone marrow. It is. Yeah, and it, it is. takes mm-hmm. months and months. Like if you were on twenty milligrams of methadone, which is what the suggested research shows for these programs. Yeah. Um, it would take you almost a year to get off of it because going down more than half of a milligram. One milligram a week would be a lot and very severe to to try to withstand as far as the physical mm-hmm. symptoms. Mm-hmm. So you look at these people that are average right now is like 120 to 150 milligrams that these people are on. Oh, wow! Like, how do you even get off of that? Wow! I know. You don't you? Don't it's it's mm. because you're so addicted physically and mentally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did they give you any other medications though to help you? Um, the they withdrawal? give you the um, medical assisted Suboxone when you're in rehab, yeah. which is what it was actually intended for. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that is 
you're giving it for um, five days and it's yeah. um certain amount of doses in um, as far as to help you like get off of and it helps the physical withdrawals. It by no means takes it away, but okay. it gives you just a little enough comfort to where you can actually stay there and not go out and go okay. back to using. But yeah. And, and that's the thing. So, okay. So, Sorry, when I met you, had you was that the first time you were in rehab or No, I think that was the second time. The second time? Mm, okay. Right. And so what happened after you left? Uh, I know you and I went right. through a lot, getting your son back and getting you better connected mm-hmm. with your parents and you know, the families get really freaked out. They're like, Dare they're never getting your kid back. We're mm. gonna raise him. You're not fit and it's like, Okay, mm-hmm. well if you really wanna keep her healthy, we've gotta give her a child back. Okay, that's not helping her in any way, shape, right. or form. You know? We need to get her on her feet to do her own thing. And a lot of parents think they're doing their best thing by taking everything away from the addict when in fact they do need some responsibility. They do need some accountability and some normalcy. Right. You know, so what went on after we after we parted? Because I know um, I I moved on to um, my another facility. Right. Well, well, I think so. I had been in rehab. I think it was like around a year ago. Prior to that, after like I said, like a couple months of mm-hmm. using the heroin, I I had no idea that I like the whole addiction thing and all the other stuff was just a side note. Like I was like, I just got to get off this heroin. Yeah. And thought that you know my parents thought that was going to be the end of it. Like you go to rehab one time and you're <laughs> cured. So yeah. Right. Um, but so at that point, I went, I had just relapsed like three months before I went in and met you. And at that point, they had kept my son at their house and I yeah. wasn't allowed to see him. That's when I finally actually acknowledged that I even did really have that problem because I couldn't go three days to pee clean to be able to see him. And so yeah. at that point, like mm. I just wanted to fucking die. Yeah. Um. But so when I got out, I yeah, the timeline is fuzzy. I did well for a long time. Mm hmm. Do you remember what you said to me when I met you? Do you? <laughs> sort of. <laughs> <laughs> when I met you, you said, don't even bother. Don't even bother with me. He's going to keep coming back because you were addicted. You know, you had an addictive, sick relationship with the guy mm-hmm. you were with at the time. Right. And you said, don't even bother. It's not even going to work. He's going to keep coming back and I'm going to keep using and it's. And I was just like, it's okay. <laughs> we'll figure it out. It'll be all right. Just, you know, talk right. to me. Talk to me. And uh, it worked out well. It did. So how long did, what went on after that? Um, so I think it was um, a couple of years that I stayed, or it's, it's so hard, it's kind of fuzzy, because I've been to rehab, I think it's a total of eight times now. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, I think it may be, maybe I had went like a year or so and relapsed again, went back into treatment, and then I... Um, Which is I, very normal. Right. Rarely, rarely does anybody quit heroin and not return to rehab. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah. 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 It's not mm-hmm. a one That's shot like, deal. It's a whole nother ball game. Right. Drug. Like, I've taken everything under the sun and willingly not even going to rehab just was like, eh, I'm done with this and stopped taking it. Mm-hmm. But that was just something totally different. Yeah. So I went, um, I don't know. At one point I decided, like, I think I was like a year and a half clean and I decided to go back to school for my master's for social work. Yeah. And that's when I think, like, I had, like, everything on the outside to, like, it looked together and, um, you know, like, in order kind of a thing. But I never really dealt with anything underlying. Yeah. I stayed away from the ex. Um, yeah, that was helpful. <clears throat> yeah, I got, so that kept me really busy going through the program. But literally within, like, a month of when I was going to graduate, um, well, that was, I started, got back in contact with my ex and I was, trying to save him basically no. and i wasn't using with him at that point okay um but i was chasing him around basically trying to help to him. get him to stop and oh, the wow. emotional stress from that mm-hmm. is eventually he ended up going to jail um and that's and like after like i just um couldn't deal with anything emotionally basically and went back to using so i actually was in in rehab for spring break and studying for my classes oh my to God. graduate oh, with isn't my that amazing? Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Well, you know, I've dealt with many patients, though, that have said um, you'd never know. I mean, they had fully functioning Mm-mm. jobs. They did very well. No one would have ever known that they were using. No. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I was leading discussions in a Ph.D. level class for the pharmacology of addiction. Yeah. It's shooting up in the bathroom. <gasps> yep. Wow. Yep. That's like a movie. Yeah, oh my it's, God. So yeah. I have a question. Sure. I've always heard this. Like, so once you 
done a drug like heroin, I mean, are you just constantly craving it? Or like even now that you're in recovery, I mean, is it like what I've heard is it's like a constant battle. Is that true or not? Or? I think it's just the you're always susceptible. I don't know if like you, okay. it's the same as like smoking once you've I mean, I don't know if you if you smoke or anything, but like mm-hmm. do that kind of a thing where you're always like you could pick it back okay. up really basically yeah, easy. But I don't think I don't crave it or think about it every day anymore. Oh, you know, okay. Like I call that. it awakening the beast. Okay, yeah. so there's certain things. The beast, when when, when we're in rehab, we're, we've removed you from the situation. So that's helpful, okay? But now they're not funding any great length of time in rehab anymore, any of the um, insurance companies or anything, So <laughs> it, which is totally unfortunate. And, and the worst, per, you know, perpetrators of that are the good insurance companies, sending mm-hmm. people in for 10 days yeah. with a heroin addiction. Insane. That's not going to do anything, and so so. Anyways, if you if you keep the if you want to keep the beast at bay, you have to really be careful what you put into your body too. So if you're taking in too many monster drinks, okay, you know, or um, smoking too much, or you know, I'm just going to smoke a little weed. Well, for the time being, man, you got to just lay off everything while those neurotransmitters die off, those um, opiate receptors, excuse me, die off. Yeah. And your brain chemistry goes okay. back to normal. Because while you're using, your brain chemistry is all going dopamine center, dopamine center. Everything is just focusing on that area. And it's artificial. It's not the natural dopamines that you're creating within yourself. It's artificial. So we need to enhance and create our own dopamine, you know, bring it back to life, essentially, when you do mm-hmm. the CAT scans on it and stuff, you can mm-hmm. see that it's a dead area. Because wow. it's been stimulated by, right. by which makes things. it even harder when you get out because you literally aren't receiving any dopamine for things that you once yeah. got pleasure from, just as far as playing with your children or going to events that you would like, crafts that you like to do, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. So I remember thinking, I'm going to be like this forever, just miserable. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> and and time is the last thing. <laughs> when, <laughs> Any addict wants to hear from me when I say, please, you've just mm-hmm. got to give it time. Please give it time. Don't put anything in your body mm-hmm. but exercise and water, okay, and carbohydrates. It, you'll be okay. You know, you'll be okay. But they want instant gratification, you know. Yeah. That's what they think. But it's that it's it takes time, and that's something they don't want to give. But that's all right. That's all right. It it Everybody finds their own path to recovery. Yeah, that's yeah. true. There is mm-hmm. no golden ticket or the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> right. Yeah. When I was researching this, this I was like, um, so yeah. So what are the steps in recovery? What's, <laughs> you know, I didn't have any definitive yeah. answers. Mm-hmm. I was kind of surprised by that. Mm-hmm. So. so what happened after all this? I know you were living with your parents for a while and mm-hmm. then your parents said you got to go when they found out you were using again. Um, yeah, so I moved back in with them to finish my master's program. Um, I was at, like I said, the tail end of that when they found out when I left rehab at spring break, like some lady that I knew that I was talking to from church that was like a counselor, um, had asked another parish member if she would allow me to stay there. Yeah. Bless this lady's heart. So I stayed there, um, didn't even know her and lived at her house, um, until the summertime and then. I ended up getting an apartment in like um, August or September, mm-hmm. and then I slowly started having Tyler stay with me. Yeah, and then like by Christmas time, I think he was there, pretty much like kind of full time, where I was back into a normal mm-hmm. cycle. But you know, do you think that that it a lot of it is the pressure? Uh, does pressure get to you the most that would make anybody think about wanting to use again, or what would you say? Um, for me, it's more just pain. Emotional pain is like the first go to mm-hmm. of um, which even now, like that 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 first initial thought of just wanting to block it, make yeah. it go away. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Absolutely, I you know. Um, I, did you know about uh, Mel- Melissa over at? Um, mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Yes, that was uh, she and I rocked that place every weekend. She she and I ran that place. We handled all the family meetings and spoke to hundreds of people and 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 rocked it. She was ten years sober, and she relapsed. Her her drug of choice though was crack, and um, 
I think mixed with opiates as well. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know what the hell was going on. I know that she was taking over a lot of responsibility there, had a better job at the rehab center. It was helping keep her sober. And then she ended up relapsing, and one thing led to another. And um, she got her husband's gun. She had just gotten married. She had two children she loved and adored. She ended up getting her husband's gun, going and parking down uh, in Port Huron at a... um, uh, by the water and the police came and she shot out the roof and uh, she said, just kill me, just kill me. And they're like, no, just get out of the car, just get out of the car. I don't oh. want to die because there's a lot of guilt and shame that goes mm-hmm. along with this, right, Shannon? Yeah. Tons of guilt and shame that goes along with it. And um, she got out of the car and she pointed at the at the cops and they ended up shooting oh. and killing her. I have chills. And she oh. started fan. Mm-hmm. In Port Huron, which is Families Against Narcotics, mm-hmm. which is a huge um, group that you support as well, right? Mm-hmm. What, yes. what goes? What do you do with them? Um, I do a lot of different fundraisers and activities with FAN or um, do talks kind of like this, just informing parents and things about um, how to you know, be insightful and helpful to their kids. And then I work through a program, Hope Not Handcuffs, that's sponsored by FAN, which is where um, somebody can go into a police station and ask for help and they... Get you into rehab immediately. That's awesome. That is Julie, great. We what talked you, about yeah, that. that um, what did you learn from that video that you were, you were uh, listening to? Oh, just to? that, you know, to criminalize this is just really not that helpful. You no, know, no. And to separate them from society, to give them felony records, and yeah. just make mm-hmm. it difficult to reconnect with society. You know, it, people need to feel like they have a purpose and like they're not some outsider and, mm-hmm. you know, these words like druggie and junky and drunk and you know all this these are just well yeah but you know what i will say in defense okay and i'm at it i mean you know i've done every drug under the sun except for heroin because my brother was addicted to heroin and it was a very dark time in my life you know after my mm-hmm. daddy died he was addicted to heroin and uh but that so that was one horse i don't ride it's heroin okay there's i was like hell no no way but i'll i'll do a line I'll take some mushrooms, I'll do some LSD or whatever. But my drug of choice was alcohol. I eventually Mm -hmm. settled on alcohol. But, you know, I do understand the other component. And that's why it's I like to work with parents and family members. Also, they get fed up. Mm -hmm. And you can understand that, right, right, Shannon? Shannon? I mean, it's just like, of course, they've heard it all before. They're sick and tired of it. You know, Mm -hmm. one more thing's been stolen from the house. They have to lock down everything. They're living actively their children's addiction or their husband's addiction or family member's addiction. It tears families Mm -hmm. apart. And that is understandable, but it's, but they're, that's why it's a family disease and not just, just one person, just one person. Yeah. I guess person has to figure out when they're being helpful or when they're enabling an addict like i've heard a lot about that mm-hmm. oh yeah like when do you cut them off i mean these are just really difficult decisions like it, you have to Absolutely. think am i enabling their habit what you know sure sure well shannon what would you say about that god it's such a fine line yeah yeah you know i've been obviously on both ends of the spectrum so i know how it felt to like i didn't want to be doing this i wanted to stop i mm-hmm. wasn't that person and um physically i was so dependent on the drug and like you don't think yourself anymore literally the circuits are rewired and you no longer go through your frontal cortex which is your ability to make critical decisions and rational thinking so Mm -hmm. it like i don't i so i I, if i didn't have the family that i did i don't know if i would have made it to where i was at um Mm -hmm. but when they finally did cut me off in that period it was like a month i want to say that i didn't see ty which was the first time Mm -hmm. ever um I did end up going to rehab, but prior to that night, like I took every all the money that I had and you know shot up all at once, just wanting to end it all. So yeah, to say like you the fear of that, like being on the other side and like with my ex when I was I had been sober for over a year at that point, chasing him and seeing like trying to stop him. That was probably worse than anything I've ever endured myself being through it because of that line of what do you do? Like his mom, she was driving him down there to get it because if she didn't, he'd get on a bus. And walk and go himself, and then he'd be gone all night, and she would lay in bed sleepless. Yeah. What do I do? Oh, so there's no right answer. There's no right. Or wrong. There isn't yes, any there. right answer. Oh, the only boy. thing I can say though is that I know that the only thing an addict knows is consequences. Mm-hmm. So if there True. are no consequences, you'll never stop. You'll never, never. stop. Okay. And 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 I would say that these these parents would yell out from the audience to me when I'd be giving this lecture, and they'd say, um, "My son or daughter isn't going to die under a." 
bridge. God, mm-hmm. They're staying in my home. And I'm like, well, then they'll die there. Right. Then they'll die in your home. Mm-hmm. You're right. enabling them. And the first, and the other thing is, is you can't trust what they say. At all. Hey, mom, I need 10 bucks to get to an AA meeting. Okay, you're going, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're not lying to well, me. Well, yeah, I used meetings for a long time oh, to stay sick. And it, sure. was a, it was a free token to have a babysitter and get out and get what I needed oh and get back goodness. home. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There, Where there's a will, there's a way. I mean, these are really inventive people. Mm-hmm. I mean, they figure it out and ways to use it and do it. But that's one of the things. Like if your entire family and everybody's being taken down by the one addict in the family, you mm-hmm. have to say, I love you. I'll drive you to rehab. Um, I'll feed you a meal, but you can't stay right. here. And you are not getting any money out of this family. Right. And like, you have to go at it your, on your own. It, it, you have to. Mm-hmm. And I think it ta- the family, it, it takes a lot to get to that point. Because this was yep. over a period of 10 years. The first time I went to rehab, both my parents and my sister were there. Then uh-huh. like my mom and my sister took me. Then like my mom mm-hmm. took me. Yeah. The last time I went to rehab, I, I went in an Uber by myself. Oh, yep. Okay. Yeah, because mm-hmm. everybody's just had it. They're like, they're hopeless. It, it's just, just like same old rodeo show. Yeah. That whole... um you just become almost numb to it. Yeah, like, absolutely. Just... And then the other component that goes along with this, because I also worked with women and children for quite a while, and uh, yet yeah, we were at Clearview, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, women, women with children and um, the shame that a lot of these women would have mm-hmm. of the things that they did while they were using. And that was really tough. Like we'd have group therapy and we'd talk about it and these girls would say, beyond prostitution, okay, that's like a given. You know, whether you're getting money or getting drugs for it, you, what about like hooking up with a dude, hanging out with him because you know he's holding and you have sex with him even though you don't want to because you know he's got drugs on him. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But these girls, beyond that, it was, a lot of it was like their kid was upstairs they were downstairs. They were they could hear them crying. They wouldn't even go in there. I had another uh, patient who left her two-year-old son just wandering around the living room for like two days oh. and was banging on the window when somebody found him. I mean, just horror stories. And they can't live physically live with what they've done. The mental is just too hard on them with what's gone on. It's just too hard for them to deal with. So that's a whole other component, mm-hmm. right? That shame and guilt. And right. you have a child and... You know, it's you, your parents, I'm sure, were like, why are you doing this to your son? I can't believe you're doing this to your son, right. you know, but it, it doesn't matter when you're in it, right? No, because like I said, you just you aren't capable of thinking correctly. You don't have that mental mm-hmm. capacity. So, mm-hmm. yeah, especially when you're actively using, there's just no way. No, it just your brain just doesn't go there. No, I mean, it attacks it at like your most primitive mm-hmm. primal instincts. So literally, yeah. that's the first and only and most important thing to you Mm -hmm. is you know it's just like getting food or water yep kind of a thing it is it is primal it's like in your mitochondrial dna it's Mm -hmm. like i must have it i will step on aunt bessie's head i will Mm -hmm. steal from my mother i will run over a policeman i will steal a script pad this was the big thing when the pharmaceutical companies were really going wild and putting writing out scripts all the time for you know doctors were and um that mothers were getting addicted to it. They'd have a C-section. When there was, remember, oh. there was a big thing. Everybody's having a C-section, mm-hmm. and they were prescribing opiates, opiates, opiates. Mm-hmm. And women were like, "I'm super mom, man. I can, you know, I feel great. <laughs> I've got all kinds of energy. I'm not hungry. I'm losing weight. I can do this and I can do that until that wears off, and they need more, and they can't get more pills. Right. And then they're, you know, how am I going to steal them? Remember that lady who ran over that cop? Do you remember that? Anybody remember mm-hmm. that? No. Yeah, she had a stolen script pad. They called the oh. police. They came and she ran them over. Oh, my. <laughs> this is like a soccer mom. Wow. Right. Yeah. That's So, yeah, it just completely hijacks your brain and your life. Yeah. Wow. And, and the only way to fix that is time. Time helps yeah. with that. Mm-hmm. Yes. What would you say the, the what was, there's not one clear defined mm-hmm. thing. Was it time and years that finally led to you, you know, you know, w- neither one of us can ever say we'll never do again, we'll never use again in any way, shape, or form. We can never say that. But what would you? What was most helpful for you uh, in your recovery? I think it definitely was a process to get to the point that I did, and it's messed up as it sounds. I almost feel like I won as far as like I was able to do it. I was getting away with it and extremely successful. I had, you know, completed school. I had an internship, a job. I had my son. Like. All that kind of yeah. stuff, and I still just had that um was just completely spiritually bankrupt, 
Mm-hmm. So I think it was like that was a pivotal point of because it was always like, oh, you can't do this. And so then it was like, watch me. And it was always in the back of my head that mm-hmm. I want to do this. I would sit there and think like, when could I get away with it, you know, in recovery and plan out, well, like in a month and a half, that's a day I won't have my son and I don't have this obligation or that. And mm-hmm. um, so I think from that point of when I just finally decided that it wasn't an option, no matter what, that I did, I didn't choose to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And then just filling my day with just different outlets of activities that helped me grow spiritually really mm-hmm. made the biggest difference. Yeah. yeah. And for a lot of people, spirituality is super uber important. Okay. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have to go to meetings and ha- be spirit, have spiritual intervention yeah. like all day long, every day. And that's the only way they can stay sober. AA literally has like a 93, 95% success rate if you follow the program mm-hmm. and you stay deeply connected to it. But I'm hearing something else. I'm hearing that intention behind it, which was, Mm -hmm. you know, my situation was different. I had horrible uh, depression and I checked out of life completely. You know, I felt like I was hijacked from depression. But I decided like you just one day, like, you know, suicide's not an option. Okay. Oh, my God. What now? So I have to figure this out. So it was really, really intentional. Mm-hmm. You know, it sounds mm-hmm. like the same with you. Like, okay, something's missing in my life. I have to make the intention to fill it with something other than drugs. So, I think that's just so important. I I, for, I believe with I believe that thoroughly because I remember one day looking at my drink. You know, one of the four hundred I had had and said, <laughs> "I hate this shit. Oh mm-hmm. my god, I hate it so much. I just want to be." clean and sober and just get on with my life and do great things and go back to school and become something. And oh my God, wouldn't that was just like a fantasy. It was like, that would just be so awesome to Mm -hmm. be that person. And I'll never forget looking over at my stepdaughter sleeping and um, looking at her sleeping and saying, she's never had a drink in her life. She Mm -hmm. was only like nine or eight or nine at that time. Never had a drink, never done any drugs. And she's so happy and sleeping like a baby. Mm -hmm. I want to be that person. I don't want to need this. Right. That's the intention, right? Yeah. It's just like, I don't want this to own me and possess me. You know, I know when I was talking to my brother about his addiction, you know, he was 15 years old when he got started. Oh. Yeah. It was right after my father had died. And uh, he had some little buddy friend of his. They got a little play. My grew up in the suburbs. His friend had, um, his dad used to give him money. Wealthy area, 85 bucks. They got a little place, a little apartment in downtown Detroit. Mm -hmm. And they would all head down there and shoot up. Can you believe that? No. It's like amazing, right? But it was chaos around our house. It was bad. He migrated towards bad kids that had gone through bad things, that had families that were disconnected. And he just kind of fell into that, you know. And I know when he and I were talking about that, he started having panic attacks. He was starting to get panic attacks when um, he would use and... Um, he didn't, you know, he didn't know what to do. And I was like, well, how did you get past it? What did you do? And he said, I had some degree, some shred of self-love mm. and I wanted to change my life and I wanted things to be different. And I think the whole thing for him went on for maybe two years, but boy, he suffered. He suffered. He, God love him. You know what he'd do? He'd walk. Okay. Miles and miles and miles and miles. And he, he's one of those kind of people that when he quits, he quits cold turkey, no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. So he'd walk from his music. His music was a savior. His music will be played on our outro today. Um, he always has a band. Um, he, uh, you know, he would walk for miles and drink coffee. <laughs> had big boys when big boys was like around all the time yeah we just sit there and drink coffee all day long and just and and he went and got a job well he went on a on a for like wayward kids they had this oceanics cruise through africa my mother scraped together enough money and through friends and stuff to send him for like a couple of months on this african cruise <laughs> he was a, like a crewmate so it was like a you know, oh, schooner. Okay, okay. okay. He was on like this huge schooner. It was really cool, actually, because <laughs> they didn't have rehab for kids then. Right. They didn't. Yeah. Yeah. And Keep then, them busy. Give them a purpose. Absolutely. Yeah. The, go mm-hmm. to Africa. That'll <laughs> freak you Africa. out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. But um, he um, he thinks that, you know, that was really helpful for him. You know, mm-hmm. It was really um, something that helped him see a different way of life and the way things worked and, you know, how to feel more positive about himself. And then his music. His music was uber important to him. And um, 
And then, then he started seeing a psychiatrist. Well, that's when they actually were therapists at the same time. I believe he was a psychiatrist too. Oh, yeah, he was. And um, he said, you know, you're going to have to start paying me because my mom couldn't afford it. So then he started working. So it was kind of like things like that. One thing after mm-hmm. self-love, you know, stuff that you have to do in order to start feeling better. And um, he's an interesting guy because um, he's very dedicated to everything that he does. Uh, and... You know, he'll have a couple beers here and there now. He quit drinking for like 18 years or something like that. And, um, but he keeps everything under control. He's very disciplined. Let's put it that way. You know, not many of us are that disciplined. It's not that easy. You know, mm-hmm. it's not that easy for you to have given everything up. But do you drink at all or anything? No, I don't anymore? do anything. No. Right do you go to meetings? Um, occasionally. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Because we, you know, we get that whole big AA thing where people get really bent out of shape. I don't like the whole religious component of it and so forth. What do you think about that? Um, the program itself is beautiful. And like you said, when followed, um, it does help somebody, you know, maintain recovery. Mm-hmm. The human component of it makes it difficult. And I think I don't like how it makes you feel stuck and trapped in um, where you're at. Like just like you open by saying, my name is Shannon and I'm an addict. Yeah. Like I always refuse to do that because it's a negative affirmation. I'm not labeling myself true. that way. I'm not that anymore kind mm-hmm. of a thing. So I'll say I'm grateful to be in recovery. But it kind of has a tendency to hyper-focus on the problem. And for mm-hmm. me, it was the repetitive, you can't do this instead of choosing not to, which yeah. it sounds silly, but just being told kind of every day, reminding myself that I couldn't do it. And like you hear these statements like I'm um, close to a relapse or I'm not that you know, far along or these terms that just, they keep you sick and stuck. Like, cause for a long time I thought I was no good. I'd have 30 days, 60 days, you know, 90 days clean and still be kind of rendered useless because of the concept of like how they view it as That's, far as like, you're always sick and you're kind of always, screwed. I agree with that. I, I do. I agree with that. And the other thing I never liked was relapse is part of recovery. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's like a goal. <laughs> when I heard that was a golden yeah. ticket. I was like, oh, shit. OK. Yeah. Right. You know? I'll just give up now. Hey, mom, oh, it's I part of recovery. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I That's was, interesting. When I was at Sacred Heart and I was teaching and people would say, you know, well, you lose, you know, relapse is part of recovery. So it doesn't have to be. And who the hell made that up anyways? I never relapsed, not so far anyways, in almost 17 years. Mm -hmm. But like you, to me, it was, um, it's not an option. That's what I said to myself all the time. Until it becomes not an option, then that's how it was for me. It was always in the back of my head. So whenever anything emotionally occurred that I didn't know how to deal with, that was my go-to. So like she said it perfectly when she realized that she couldn't commit suicide and that wasn't an option. I just remember staying there feeling like I was just naked in front of the whole world, (laughs) like, holy fuck. Oh, yeah. Now, oh, what yeah. do I do when now? When I finally made that decision that it was yep. not an option, I and I had no clue how to fix myself, but I just knew that wasn't it. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely. Yeah, and then you have to deal with <laughs> everything underlying. Yeah, and I think so much of drug addiction yeah. is just wanting to escape and not being mm-hmm. able to deal with difficult emotions and, and emotional pain. Sure. Sure, or you mental know, health issues that whether, you had that are gone unaddressed. Yes, yeah, oh, mm-hmm. definitely. That's yep. the big chicken or the egg thing that we go through all the time. Right. So we oh, say, yeah. if you come into recovery, you come into rehab, you know, we don't know. You may have bipolar, you may have an anxiety disorder or depression disorder, but we don't know that. And we won't know that until you've been completely sober for at least six months. So we're not going to give you bipolar medication mm-hmm. while you're in recovery, you know, in the beginning stages of recovery, because we have to figure out what is exactly going on, what led to all this. Because often nobody knows. Right. They're really confused and they have no idea, you know, what to do about it. Um, how, how do you handle your daily recovery? Um, just keeping a routine and um, as far as having things that I'm responsible for or commitments, accountability. You know, I have different things set up throughout that I do every single week. And Mm -hmm. um, just like giving back, I think, has helped the most because now like being a therapist and being able to look at someone when they come in, like I looked at you and said what I did and know like that I can help them through, Mm -hmm. you know, through this journey. Yeah, I think that in itself is and just never wanting to go back to where they're at as well. I think a little bit helps to see, you know. Absolutely. Daily reminder kind of a thing. It's interesting you use that word accountability. Gosh, we've used that word so many times, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. That was a big thing for me, too. 
I mean, my situation's different, obviously, but kind of mm-hmm. similar in that it's all the same. You know, hey, I wa- like, hey, it's I, pain. I, mm-hmm. Yes, I was not functional. I was not living a functional life. I was, you know, I would say I was self-destructive. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. whether it was drugs or suicide, I mean, well, yeah, that's pretty destructive, you know. But again, like just the accountability thing, showing sure. up and helping other people. And sure. So that's a huge thing. You know, and also when you're giving up drugs and alcohol and all this kind of stuff, it's like losing your best friend. That has been oh. your go-to mm-hmm. forever and ever. Somebody taught you it. You didn't wake up one day as a child and say, I can't wait to start using drugs and alcohol. Somebody, you know, turned you on to it and you're like, this is way better than self-soothing myself, right? Like we used to when we were children. So I'll never forget being with my husband at um, a restaurant after I'd gotten sober and we were sitting there at the table and I could see the bar from where I was sitting. It was like over in the distance and I started crying. And I just started crying because I knew I could never have another drink again in my life. I'm like, I will never have another drink again. And my husband is not, he's a man of few words, really. (laughs) He's not philosophical in any way, shape, or form. But he turned to me and he said, honey, please don't cry. Just think about it. The monkey's off your back. The world is your oyster now. You can do anything you want. You can be anything you want. You're so smart. You can do anything. And that was just like one of those light bulb moments. Mm -hmm. I was just like. He's right. The monkey is off. I can drive past six. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because cocktail hour at my house was at five. You know, I can actually go somewhere after dinner. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's amazing. I could, I don't have to worry about hangovers, you know? And for the first year, I think I would get up in the middle of the night, and this still happens sometimes, which is weird. I'll get up in the middle of the night at like three o'clock in the morning to pee, like all of us old ladies. (laughs) And I'll go in there and go, Do I have a hangover? Oh, I I haven't had a hangover. I haven't had a hangover in 17 years. That's bizarre, right? Mm -hmm. It, It really sticks in your head of what you went through. And I, and I would say this to parent, parents and families, and I think you would agree with me in this, that if you're expecting, oh, because parents would say, all I want is my little Jackie, Julie, or Johnny back. I just want them back to the way they were. And I, well, forget about that because they've been through hell. Right. They're not coming back the same person as That's they went so in. That's so true. Right. You must accept this mm-hmm. now. They will never be that mm-hmm. same person. They will be somebody else. Do you agree with that, Shannon? Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Because families just don't understand why you've changed. They don't understand the chemistry of the brain and that they're not, you're not thinking rationally. Right. You know? So do you go to church a lot? Is that really helpful for you? Um, I'm not very religious, but I'm spiritual. I do go to church. I go to a Christian church and actually, like, I actually got um, active or whatever you want, you know, within instead of just coming and going. So, Mm -hmm. like, I play the piano there with the worship group on Sunday. I didn't know you played the piano. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's so nice. So that was huge. And actually, it's funny because this whole um, kind of what but that lady letting me stay at her house, like just that random act of kindness oh. had a huge impact. And my uncle sure. started coming over and wanting to do Bible study. And like I said, like I wasn't into that. But just yeah. the fact that he was compassionate mm-hmm. enough at this point, after everything I put my family through, yeah, including extended family, that he had that love in his heart just to try. He just wanted nothing more but to help me. And little things like that started to fall into place where I had. That um, is so nice. Yeah, it's those, it's so little important. things. Compassion. Yes. But, right, the little things. It's I totally the agree things. with that. Yep, the little things that'll change. Right, I always thought it was some mm-hmm. massive, um, huge thing like that was going to fix me. I would hang on people's words for this, you know, one statement that was going to, mm-hmm. you know, get me through it. And it was mm-hmm. all those little suggestions that I never would take. Yeah. That finally doing them all together. I agree with that. And, you know, some of the times it would be going to an AA meeting that I didn't want to go to because I did. I went to AA meetings for a year every day Mm -hmm. in in Phoenix, Arizona with er, everybody spoke Spanish. And I was the only white girl sitting in there amongst all men. And I'm like, hi, I'm Liz. You know, Mm -hmm. but it didn't matter. My butt was there. And there was a reason for that, because they may say something that it's going to change your life. Mm-hmm. You don't know. I mean, there may be something that somebody's going to say that that is going to make you think and feel differently. And I really believe that. Mm-hmm. I, I really believe that. Tell us a little bit more about Fan and um, the help you do with children. Um, well, trying to get um, into schools earlier for um, earlier prevention, like into middle schools right now, trying to get a program into there. 
Okay. And, um, but that's, that's what my idea. goal, that's what I would like to do as far as just creating awareness. Because the parents, like you said, they're so lost and bewildered. Yeah. And then there's this whole, it's not my kid, not in my backyard, not that young. And unfortunately it is. My son's in middle school in sixth grade and he came out and we we're talking after school and he said a girl had passed out in the bathroom. Wow. And I immediately, like, I didn't even think like that would even be an option in middle school. And so further on in the conversation, he asked me, he goes, mom, she had like a blue band tied around her arm. What was that? So she had been tying off and shot up in a bathroom. Oh, at my middle God. School. So it's just the prevalence of it is absolutely horrifying. Wow. But getting that education out, because I think there was that it was like a phase where it was um, very feared. And then those generations kind of grew up and then grew up with kids without it. And now it was like, you just don't talk about it and it's not there. Yeah. And I think the perception now is too, like the fear of like, if you educate your kids, you're telling them how to do it, but they're going to figure that out. So it's, you know, giving them the skills to, and knowledge to get past it. Cause they show like statistically, there's a huge percentage of kids that will try drugs in high school, but people that will outside of high school, it's like less than 11%. So if you can get to those kids and, you know, make a difference and an impact at that point in their pivotal decision making, mm-hmm. they have a far better chance of not becoming addicted or trying dr- drugs of that severity. Well, that's like they say, I don't want to put my eye because I make my patients, if they're of a certain age, I want them to put their kids on birth control, you know, <laughs> and they'll say, you know, the, the, well, I think if I tell her to go on birth control, then she's going to um, start having exactly sex. Same. So let's not be stupid, right? Yes. Oh, my goodness. That's not going to help in any way, shape, or form. So what is FAN doing exactly? Um, FAN is Families Against Narcotics. So they do basically just trying to educate um, parents and family members or be a support. Um, there's different, like, NARNON groups that they have where the mm-hmm. families can go to. Like, it's like a mini AA or NA meeting for the loved ones that are going through this. Um, all sorts of fundraisers for awareness. Like, next week is there's a walk that they're doing that's great where's that going to be shoot i think it's in fraser michigan Mm -hmm. on saturday um and that's for um like i did it last year for what you can put a team together and walk just for awareness and you go all through the neighborhood and there's a route that's um kind of like mapped out and then the it's a fundraiser so it's um the money goes towards raising more awareness and more programs okay what's going on with rehabs these days do you have any idea as far as as far as how long are they letting people stay? Medicaid is still twenty one days with the five day detox, um, but the private companies are the ones that are doing like Blue Cross Blue Shield, which yeah. is insane. You have good insurance that yeah, you're paying that for. You're paying you can top only get ten for. to fourteen days 10 of treatment. Days. Yeah, I think they're starting to come around, and um, extensions are actually um, more freely given because they realize that it's just not even close to enough, and that. They're just cycling through in and out over and over. Well, it's got to be costing them a fortune to have mm-hmm. people coming and going in and out. Right. They did start like with Macosa funding, which is a step in the right direction, is that um, it's providing support when you get out. So it's like three quarter housing wow. are paid for for like two months. So you can okay. get out. You're in a recovery based home. Yeah. Um, you're helped give like um, I work with the lady that does live right, who she's mm-hmm. has people that will help you find employment, help you make your resume show help you get your driver's license back all these things that we take for granted and we just walk out of after we've literally let our entire you know our whole life on fire and then trying to pick up the pieces yeah of like you need that support and that help to kind of get back on your feet without a doubt and there's still a ton of work ahead of Mm -hmm. us that needs to be done would you not agree i agree there's (laughs) a lot of work but um shannon i can't thank you enough for coming Mm -hmm. in and telling your story and Letting everybody out there know how much um, that there's hope that you can mm-hmm. do this. It just, if there's one thing you could say to anybody about this, what would you say? Probably just hold on, get yeah. through the next day. Yes. You know, yeah. just yeah. that was probably the hardest thing to do was to think that there, to allow myself to think there was a better way or mm-hmm. a different way to live. Yeah. And now it's like, I remember that first, it was months and months into recovery where I felt like a random, like, shred of joy in my heart over the dumbest thing and yeah. just sobbing because I didn't think that was possible. Yep. 
you know. Absolutely. Or sleeping through the night for the first time. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing, (laughs) isn't it? Yeah, and that's one true statement, one day at a time, one minute at a time, whatever we have to do in order to find our joy again, right? Right. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming Mm -hmm. in. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. Um, Julie, thank you again for another wonderful show. Um, Today we're uh, going out with my brother Danny's... um, one of his great songs. This one is called Captain Richard. Captain Richard used to come see him at Union Street, downtown Detroit. <laughs> he was a homeless man that they used to feed and he used oh. to hang out there. And uh, so they wrote a great song about how, uh, about him. So this is what's going to play in the mm-hmm. outro from my brother's uh, great band, Coup de Trois. Uh, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook under Liz Life Guru. We are so happy that everybody joined us today. Thank you, Jessica, to my engineer. And everybody, have a good day and a great Memorial Weekend. Namaste. Namaste.